risk is not this objective thing. It's like looking into a room full of, of funhouse mirrors, and every time you change your perspective, the amount of risk changes as well. Hi, I'm Alex Pascal, CEO of Coaching.com, and this is Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. My guest today is a strategist, TED speaker, and best-selling author. She coined the term Great Rhino as a call to take a fresh look at how we respond to obvious, probable, and impactful risks. She founded the advisory firm Great Rhino and & Company and is the author of four books, including the global bestseller, The Great Rhino. Please welcome Michelle Wooker. Hi, Michelle. Hey, how are you? Great. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Let's start where we always start, coaches, on some drinking coffee. We don't always drink coffee, but we always start with this question. What are we drinking today? So I am drinking a tea called a Pit-R tea. It's from the Yunnan region of China. It refers to a special drying and fermentation process. It just kind of mellows it out and... I'm never, ever going to be able to drink black tea again after drinking this. And it became an obsession after I started traveling to China regularly. So it's it's my new favorite tea, and I've become a bit of evangelist about it. I actually have some already here. I have like 100 packets, little packets, because we had someone else that came to the podcast and wanted to drink the same tea. And it was delicious, but I kind of forgot I had it. And today I'm, I'm making another one. So thank you for reminding me, Michelle. It's really delicious tea. It is. And it's very versatile. There's green versions, white versions, black versions. And it's just, it's a little hard to find, but when you Amazon. do it, it's so worth it. I found an organic one on Amazon. I think it's black tea. Certainly smells like, oh. like black tea, and it's delicious. I've got one from a company called Adagio that has a bunch of different flavors, and I've, I've just signed up for a subscription. I drink it so much and run out of it so good. <laughs> I love that. Soon in our conversation, we'll get to that point where you tell us, you know, what you were doing traveling to China. You have a very interesting background. I know that you started as a journalist, and you're usually referred to as many different things by many different people, you know, an economist, even psychologist. So you have, you know, quite an extensive and fascinating background. So why don't you take me back to the beginning? How did you start your journey and ended up in this probably unexpected place? many decades later. <laughs> Very unexpected. And an unexpected circle back to where I, I started. I was the nerdy little kid who read too much, who was the super shy and, and you know, the, the, the sort of youngest and the smallest one in the class who was always the, the baby when they played family. <laughs> and so I read a lot, obviously, and I decided I wanted to be a writer. And when I was in high school in Waco, Texas, I spent the summer as a, a candy striper just like a volunteer at the local Veterans Administration Hospital, and was the assistant to a psychologist. And uh, just became fascinated in how the human mind works from that. And so I wanted to do that. I also learned that there's this hierarchy that the psychiatrists with the MD kick around the psychologists with the PhD who kick around the social workers with the MSW. And of course, when you're a smart kid, like you want to be at the top of the heap. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I want to be a psychiatrist, not thinking about the fact that I pass out when I see blood. And I just figured, you know, doctors 
they get over it. I'll get over it. But I didn't. And I hated psychology classes. They all wanted to do these experiments and things. So I gave up on that, started traveling. I spent the summer between high school and college in Belgium, where I had family, and in Germany on a month-long exchange program. And between my junior and senior years of college, I went to the Dominican Republic and to Haiti, which officially I wasn't supposed to do because they just had a coup. <laughs> but but <laughs> I went anyway. And eventually that became my first book uh, about why two countries on one island speaking different languages, different racial mixes, different historical, but lots of similarities as well. You know, what they had in common, what they didn't. And it was a mix of economics and history and anthropology and sociology and even literature, all of that together, and a little bit of journalism. So I started with that book. The first few years of my career, I was a journalist. I was a financial journalist because living in a poor country, I became very, very interested in economic development and finance and wrote about emerging markets bonds in the early 1990s and uh, big sovereign debt restructurings. I stopped thinking that $100 million was a lot of money. And from there, I actually ended up getting getting very sick because I hadn't learned about you know taking time off to, to rest and be good to yourself and you know sleep enough. So I ended up taking a leave from work because I had just worked myself to being exhausted. And that's when I decided I had to go back to my writing. And so that's that's how the first book happened. And I went back and forth for a while between this finance world. I became a, a Latin America bureau chief. I kept getting kicked upstairs. I ended up getting sick again. And so I just said, all right, this I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So I left. I moved into a think tank, the World Policy Institute, that was based at the New School in uh, Greenwich Village in New York City. And started working on another book on immigration and doing some freelancing and speaking and consulting. And eventually was asked to take that think tank and spin it off into an independent organization, which I did right before Lehman Brothers crashed. (laughs) So that was interesting in the sense of the old uh, Chinese curse. So I learned a lot about running an organization. I mean, I'd had some management training before and had, you know, run a bureau, uh, but... Before you keep going, tell us about that Chinese curse. Oh, may you live in interesting times. Oh, I didn't know that was, that came yeah. from the uh, Chinese curse. That's very interesting. It, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Pun intended. But um, um, yeah, so it's just, you know, I learned how to how to do all the, you know, incorporation of an organization, building a board, building all of the, the infrastructure that you need. I had a good right hand who helped with that and did it for seven years, then realized that and near the end of the seven years, I realized I needed to go back to writing. And that was about the time of the, uh, the Greek debt crisis. And I'd written a paper based on a comparison between my time writing about the Argentinian debt crisis when I'd written about a proposal to do a proactive restructuring and debt forgiveness. And they said, no, 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 no. And so instead of losing 30% of their money, they lost 70% of their money. And so when I saw something similar happening in Greece, I wrote a paper that was one of the early public calls for restructuring. And it got a lot of attention. I was a guest host on... CNBC Worldwide, uh, Worldwide Exchange, and it helped to spark a public conversation that led to Greece doing an early restructuring that helped prevent chaos and probably a collapse of the euro. And so that's what really got me started on the work that I'm doing now, which is about 
what happens when people see a big scary thing coming at them? It's like huge. It's obvious. People are talking about it. It's coming right at you. It's got the horn. It's scary. It's dangerous, like a rhino. And it gives you a choice. And so my work is about what makes the difference between the people who see this big gray rhino coming at them and deal with it and the ones who let themselves get trampled. And so I'm now doing my own thing. I'm writing about, speaking about, thinking about, consulting about gray rhinos and about risk in general, about what all of the things are about a situation, but also about each one of us that we bring to a gray rhino situation. So that's the nutshell. (laughs) So tell me about these famous great rhino. When I was thinking about the differences between Greece and Argentina, I was looking for a big question that I really wanted to tackle. And I realized that the world wasn't as interested in geeky sovereign debt credit questions (laughs) like I was. And I also realized that the question I was asking was much bigger than just sovereign debt or even bigger than the the policy issues that I was working on, climate change and financial crisis, that this question about what's the difference between the people who respond to something scary and dangerous and obvious and the ones who don't was really relevant to business strategy, to personal growth, to leadership, as my readers told me, often even relevant to their personal lives. So when I was thinking about how to write about this question in a non-geeky way that people would actually read, I was talking with a friend and and sharing this, this dilemma. And that's when the rhino came into my head. I said to him, you know, it's big, it's scary. You know, the horn popped into my field of vision and it's coming at me. And so he made a joke about a concept that was popular at the time, the black swan, which is something that is unforeseeable, that's unimaginable that you know you can't depict because it just is so far outside of your frame of reference. And it was intended as a way to get people to realize that there's a lot more uncertainty in our world than we think, and to be resilient and agile so you can deal with that. And instead, policymakers used it as a way to, as a cop-out, basically. The, oh, financial crisis, nobody saw it coming. I lost all your money oops, nobody saw it coming. You hear it all the time as a cop-out. Anyway, so my friend said, oh, well, you could call it a black rhino, kind of, you know, riffing off of the black swan. And I didn't want to be derivative of a concept that I felt was being badly abused, not as the author intended. But I thought, wait a minute, I went to the zoo when I was a little girl, and I remember seeing rhinos, and I think it was a black rhino, or was it a white rhino? let me go to Wikipedia because I don't really remember. And that's when it hit me that black rhinos, even though we call them that, are not black. And white rhinos, even though we call them that, are not white. They're all gray, which should be really, really obvious. You know, there's this big gray two-tongue thing right in front of you. (laughs) But we twist ourselves into pretzels to pretend that it's something that it's not. And so that part of the metaphor was about how much more vulnerable humans are than we want to think to the things that are right in front of us that we are talking about that some people are doing something about. And so that's the gray rhino metaphor. And it became a book that came out in 2016, has uh, sold around 400,000 copies around the world. And it became a concept, a sort of an analytical framework 
for for dealing with gray rhino events, whether it's a, a big policy issue like financial risk in China or climate change or business strategy, or even, as I mentioned, personal issues. So it's a very flexible and, and quite fun metaphor that also has prompted my friends to send me pictures of rhinos when they go to you know museums and places all over the world or on safari. And they send me these cute videos of, of baby rhinos, which are so adorable. So they just sent me one today. It wasn't a baby rhino, but it was a, a rhino that wakes up a sleeping dog. So the dog wakes up and sees the big rhino and goes, ah, runs away. So I highly recommend rhino videos. Rhino videos, yeah. Maybe not as popular as cat videos, but maybe maybe we'll get there. <laughs> so one of the, the areas of expertise you have is, is around risk. And our audience here at Coaches and Some Drinking Coffee are coaches. Risk, I think, is a predominant theme in coaching that perhaps doesn't really get talked about too often. We don't put it really on plain, in plain sight. It is one of those things that sometimes it's assumed or it's like on a secondary plane. But oftentimes when you're working with clients, the way they look at risk has a lot of ramifications in, in the way they're managing their careers, the way they manage certain situations. And I think one thing that I've always found interesting is that if you take no risks, that might be the biggest risk of all. And it's hard to see that. You know, I think it's being risk adverse in some contexts is seen as a really good thing. And in some other contexts, it's actually a terrible thing. And when you look at just like the unfolding of life in general in the universe, it seems like taking a little bit of a leap and a risk is a necessary aspect for survival. It's almost like entropy in a way functioning in like, let's say in this case, like a human form. So why is managing and dealing with risks so difficult? Wow. <laughs> Just an easy question to get you started, you know, exactly. warming up. <laughs> yeah, well, so this is, of course, what I've been working on in the aftermath of the gray, gray rhino. People would, would ask me about applying this to their personal lives. And I didn't know what to do with it because I'm not a self-help writer or, you know, I mean, I do business and strategy and finance and, and geeky things. And I was talking to a friend of mine, a private equity CEO, brilliant, visionary, visionary person who'd been a, a sounding board for the Gray Rhino. And I said, Jeff, what, well, what do I do with this? And he said, well, there's actually a bigger connection than you think. He says, our investment committee met last week and we, we wanted to figure out why I think some of the, our investments didn't work out as we hoped. And we'd done the due diligence and all the red flags were there, but we hadn't paid attention to them. Because they weren't the traditional ones, you know, problems with the product, problems with the business model, big economic recession, anything like that. He said it was bad personal risk decisions by the CEOs. It was the cheating, the drunk driving, the domestic violence, the, the speeding, those sort of things. And so that's when I started looking, you know, going back to the, the psychological interests in my life. And looking at the differences among different CEOs in how they dealt with risk. And interestingly, around that time, we were starting to see a lot more attention by boards to CEOs taking bad and often very dramatic risk decisions because, you know, they would do things that were eccentric, like, you know, throwing tantrums over not having the right kind of tequila or 
bragging about sleeping with a Russian spy who was involved in a big political scandal, you know, all sorts of, of things. And there was a study about the Ashley Madison website, Information Breach, you know, about the, the website for people who were cheating on their spouses. I remember it that. Was, mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And some academics brilliantly took that data and they cross-referenced it with securities violations and other law-breaking things. Huge correlation. And so it's an underlooked aspect of business. The media glorifies big risk takers, you know, so they, they get attention for it. They get affirmation, they get reinforcement, but then eventually it always ends badly. And Correlation is not causation, except sometimes it is. <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly. It absolutely is. And then you look at, at corporate culture. You know, there's some of these these big, you know, legacy corporations have been there for decades and decades and they want to, quote unquote, innovate. But their culture is just not set up for, for taking risks and doing new things. And then you have all these startups where the MO is... Move fast and break things. Exactly. Which is, you know, t- taking risks without thinking about them at all. So I started thinking about all these these questions about individual personalities about, you know, is someone who fits a certain personality type likely to take more of one risk or another? How do you change your your organization? How do our cultural values affect the risks that we take? And then I read somewhere, unfortunately, not until after I had written You Are What You Risk, which is the, the sequel to The Gray Rhino, I didn't realize until after it came out, but there's some statistic that says that each one of us takes, give or take, 35,000 choices, decisions every day. And every one of those choices is a risk. And every risk that we take is a choice. And, you know, risk, we'd like to think that it's something that we can assign a number to or measure or estimate because the whole economy is based on that. Insurance and actuary tables and all sorts of things are based on quantifying and roughly estimating risk that we think we can estimate more precisely than we think, but it's actually an illusion because the same risk, you know, for me walking down an alley at two in the morning is different for the same risk from you and different from the seven foot tall, 300 pound guy. It's a quantifiably different situation. So risk is not this objective thing. It's like looking into a room full of of funhouse mirrors. And every time you change your perspective, the amount of risk changes as well. Wow. If, can you imagine if we were walking through life, kind of computing all these variables, it would kind of probably drive us a little crazy, but it's the reality of what we're doing here, isn't it? <laughs> it absolutely is. And so of course, you know, writing about risk, I had to talk to some big risk takers and there are uh, a couple of extreme athletes uh, in my book. And what's interesting is that the popular idea is, oh, they're daredevils. They take all these big risks. But what they do is they actually prepare so much that they reduce risk as much as possible. They train, they study. You know, I did a a podcast last year with Alex Honnold, the Climbing Gold podcast about risk and climbing. And it was just a great conversation because here's somebody who lives this all the time. But these supposed daredevils, these supposed big risk takers actually are doing everything they can to minimize the risk. So you or I went out and decided to climb a mountain today. Well, that would be a huge risk. But for them, it's much smaller. And so this, I really want to challenge this idea that risk 
is objective, something that you can really measure. And so once we start paying attention to the risks around us, to how we feel, to our own personalities and experiences and the habits and processes that we create, we can actually change how we take risks. We can take smarter risks. We can understand our colleagues better. We can understand our stakeholders, our investors, our clients, our adversaries across the negotiating table. So by really understanding deeply, starting with yourself, your attitude towards risk and what you bring to it, both things you can't change and things that you can, and then applying that process to the people around you, it's such a powerful interpersonal tool that you know. I, I hope that a lot of coaches start really thinking about this and talking about it actively because it's the kind of thing where when I interviewed people for the book, they came away from the interview saying, wow, I learned so much from that interview. And I thought, wait a minute, I, I was the one who was supposed to be learning from that. But just starting to talk about these things opens up windows and doors that people didn't even know were closed. You know, as you're talking about risk and those people that prepare for different situations, it really kind of makes me think about, you know, how can we reevaluate a lot of the things we do in our lives from like the perspective of diminishing risk and understanding it as well, that maybe that we're doing certain things and, you know, to make it relevant to coaching when we're working with clients, there may be a risk of potentially getting fired if you don't achieve X or if you do Y, but really kind of breaking those down and understanding kind of maybe the risk of the inverse, maybe aiming too high for a promotion and stopping, not paying attention to some of the things that are falling on your day-to-day that maybe you should be paying more attention to that perhaps won't lead to a promotion as quickly, but over the longer term, it is more likely to not derail you because you're paying attention to the things you have to pay attention from an execution perspective versus the things that will propel your career forward. I mean, there are so many things you can do to break down risk. In your experience, other than professional risk takers that are trying to diminish risk when they're doing highly risky situations, do you find that like normal people in our normal days, are people paying enough attention to risk, how to diminish it, to understand it? No, absolutely not. And I think that some of what people think is, okay, we just want to minimize risk. But risk is actually a two-sided thing. I teach at the the DCRO Risk Governance Institute, uh, which is is aimed at boards, chief chief risk officers, and people who deal with risk in their life. And we talk about the positive governance of risk-taking, which means that you want to take the good risks and you want to avoid the bad risks and you want to find the right balance. And it's funny how many people have told me I got fired and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Absolutely. So there's a risk of staying in a job and succeeding in a job that is not right for you. You know, those golden handcuffs are a risk too. So I always encourage people to ask themselves riskier than what? And Mm -hmm. each one of us brings a different bias towards how we see risk. I, I do a lot of workshops where one of the first questions I will ask is, how do you define risk? And I'll get three batches of answers. And it's amazing how different it is depending on the group. So some people are like, oh, peril, loss, danger, you know, something that's bad. And the other ones are, you know, adventure, opportunity, gamble. And then they're the ones who say, well, it 
depends. It's a little bit of both. And obviously I'm in the, in the middle of that. And each risk has elements of good and bad. And whether it, it's not just whether it's a good or bad thing, but whether it's good or bad for, for you, for each person. I talk about something called the risk fingerprint, which is, uh, well, if you look at the, you know, imprint of a glass at a crime scene, that's what we might call our risk profile, all the choices that we make, the risks that we take, and those tell the world who we are. But what creates that imprint? That is our risk fingerprint, which like a real fingerprint has three parts. There's the innate part that we can't change, like the whorls and the arches and loops. That's why it's such a great biometric identifier. And then there are our experiences uh, that each, you know, it's different for some groups of people that might be the same for certain groups, but that's like if you cut your finger when you're cooking and it ends up leaving a scar or, or if you burn yourself a burn, um, it changes the fingerprint itself and it changes the biometric identifier. And for some people, they never want to see anything more dangerous than a plastic spork again in their mm-hmm. life. And for other people, they say, oh, I cut my finger, put a bandaid on, I'm going to be a sushi chef. You know, so it's that combination of the innate plus the experience. And then the third part of it is like if you use, you know, raw shea butter lotion and take really good care of your hands, or if you've got calluses from manual labor or you stick your hand in water for too long, it gets wrinkly. Those are the things that we have some control over. Our physical environment, uh, our social circles, the processes and habits that we create for you know, for a leader who's being coached, it's what's the risk-taking environment that you create for your team? You know, what are you encouraging? What aren't you encouraging? What are the examples that you are setting? So all three of these come together. And I get asked all the time, is, is there an ideal risk personality or fingerprint? And, and I say, no. But what's ideal is that you are mindful enough, that you're aware enough of how to match your risk fingerprint with the situations in your life. If you, if you like the same thing every day, well, then maybe working at a big corporation is a better risk bet for you. But if you like change, if you like new things, if you don't want to risk getting bored, if you don't want to risk having a boss who's, you know, a bully, a control freak who doesn't know what they want, you know, then staying at the job is a bigger risk. So, it's very, very subjective. And that's one of the points that I'm trying to get across. And I think it's something that, that coaches certainly recognize is that they're working with the raw material uh, that each client has. And they're trying to propose not just cookie cutter solutions, but solutions that fit with that client. And understanding this risk fingerprint of your client helps you as a coach to come up with better suggestions that are much more closely tailored to that CEO or the other coaching clients' needs. Absolutely. So you're looking in that kind of individual lens. One of your areas of expertise is geopolitical dynamics. So let's say executives these days, there's so many things that they have to consider in these hyper-connected systemic world. Are we living through a time where the geopolitical structure of the world, are we in a very heavily risk phase of kind of large-scale development? Is the hyper-connectivity driven by technology, the emergence of AI, are these things raising the overall risk of 
failure in the system or do you see all these progress as being able to allow humanity to progress in a more orderly and ultimately positive way or is it both is it a little bit of chaos leading to hopefully a better state of affairs like well, what's your perspective on kind of where we are in the world today because things look very chaotic when you look at the news today and i think the news is always good to kind of separate yourself from the day today and see overarching patterns and typically when you look at the bigger picture and you look at history from a lens that is not micro it's more macro across decades and hundreds of years there seems to be these linear human progress that perhaps is not as easy to perceive when you're looking at like the news cycle but you know what are some of your your thoughts on these michelle i'm very interested Wow. Well, I, I find myself saying it depends <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, that's a nice way to hedge a little bit of the risk of answering that question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> but I think one of the things that you know, people talk about risks, they talk about identifying risks. You know, clients come to me and they say, Michelle, what are the big risks? And I always hesitate because this whole idea of a gray rhino works the best if someone identifies the risks in front of them because they're all coming from different perspectives. And the other part is that it's not just the risk itself, it's the response. There's this feedback loop. And you know, if we respond this way, then it could turn out for the best. If we respond that way, not so much. And I also don't see progress as something linear. You know, I was so funny. I was just uh, reading about uh, New Coke and uh, some, you know, some thread on LinkedIn, and people love to say, "Oh, the whole New Coke thing—that was such a marketing disaster." And what's interesting is that that Coke went into that with, uh, you know, they saw that their market share was falling, and they did focus groups. They they asked people, and they found out yes, people want something sweeter. They changed New Coke. I was in Germany that summer. And sort of, you know, laughed at my American friends because they introduced it in America first and we still had old Coke in, uh, in Europe. But there was this huge outcry and that led to Coke bringing back classic Coke. And so people say, oh, it's such a big mistake. But if you look at it, it actually ended up bringing their market share back up. So they achieved what they wanted. Because people were interested in the original, which they weren't before, but now that it was not available and becomes available, then it becomes appealing again, right? <laughs> yes, and I doubt that any you know, marketing genius had thought about that ahead of time. That'd be a hyper genius. Can you imagine that? That's Machiavellic almost. And if they had, you know, whether Coke would have gone for it. I mean, a lot of companies, organizations, I mean, human nature we're more afraid of doing the wrong thing to fix whatever the risk is that we're facing than we are of doing nothing. So way too many people just end up doing nothing. Or if one person raises their flag, that their hand is, and says there's a red flag, if it's a room full of people who've all come from the same background, they're much more likely to just ignore the red flag. So we need to get more used to you know, really recognizing the risks in front of us recognizing them that it's not enough just to make a list of top risks and say, hey, here are the things that, that the risks are. It's, it's about identifying how you might respond, what the possible scenarios are. And as far as you know, the geopolitical situation in the world right now and all of the risks, you know, during the, the pandemic, particularly the first six months of it, I get all these email newsletters and I lost count of how many of them had unprecedented or you know, uncertainty in the headlines. And 
there was some things, one of these, these, you know, cheesy things that uh, your uncles forward to you, but in this case was actually really profound. They said, you know, if you're hundred years old right now, or a little less than a hundred years, you had the great flu pandemic. You had the first world war. You had the second world war. You had all these wars. You had the invention of the, the, the atomic bomb. You had all these changes over the 20th century. And we like to think that right now, these changes that we're going through are bigger and bigger and bigger, but are they really in comparison to things? So I think, you know, everybody goes through their own historical shocks. But I've also read, particularly as at, through the pandemic, they're saying, oh, people are taking bigger risks. They're leaving their jobs, you know, doing things. And to me, it wasn't that they were taking bigger risks. It was that they were defining risks in their life differently. You know, they see their job and they say, oh, well, it looks like this company's going to go under. I better... I'm better off if I go someplace that's not going to go under or say, you know, healthcare workers or frontline restaurant and other workers. They're like, you know, if I go to work, the, the risk to me of getting really sick or of a customer punching me in the face or whatever, that's just gone up really high and I'm not being compensated enough for that. And there were other people who saw that their retirement portfolios boom because of the run up in markets. And I said, well, you know, I can afford to retire. Why don't I go do something that I want? So people reevaluated the risks in their lives and they made different decisions, With which goes back to what I was saying before about how risk is not this set in stone thing, that it, it changes depending on our priorities and on the, the situation around us. And that's why every risk that you take tells the world exactly who you are. So many interesting things in, <laughs> that I'd like to unpack. The new Coke anecdote that you mentioned is, is interesting, but perhaps I find it interesting in, in, in a different way that I think you intended when you were bringing it up. It's interesting in, a, in an age of misinformation and lack of clarity as to what's truth. That's also coupled with these kind of nonlinear complex dynamics you know, let's say that a genius came up with like, hey, let's do this. We'll draw attention. We know that good news is good for business and bad news, if it draws enough attention, is also good for business. We're entering this era that where a marketer that's listening to this may be like, hmm, maybe it's time that I do that in, in our business, right? To kind of do something that will clearly be a flop. It will clearly mess with some of the long established views or values or likes of whatever our product is and people, you know, loving certain aspects. And then we'll retract five days later and we'll draw all this attention and it'll ultimately be a good thing. I mean, it seems like we're living in that time where there's a lot of kind of disingenuous information around. And the fact that you could be incentivized by leveraging some of those dynamics, I think it's alarming. I don't know if it's unprecedented, but certainly the sheer scale of the markets today, the ability to get in front of billions of people quickly with social media. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of perverse incentives with scale that probably increase the overall kind of risk of things not working out well from a whole global systemic. I'm kind of trying to put together a couple of complex thoughts. So does that make sense to you? And what do you make of that? Yeah. Well, you know, all the, the, the complex things going on, I'll often tell people that behind every black swan is a crash of gray rhinos. You know, no <laughs> necessarily dealing with all at once that when they all happen at the same time, that's what creates effects that nobody could have anticipated. 
And yeah, there's a lot. The whole AI development. You know, I go, I go all over the world. And I was in Italy in May. Uh, I was in, in China in April. I was, you know, across uh, Asia and Europe last fall. And I always get questions about AI. You know, what do you see about the AI gray rhino risks? And there's all sorts of things. And I, you know, I mentioned them briefly in the gray rhino, which was written in 2015, and we didn't know mm-hmm. nearly what we do. But for me, the biggest thing is this lack of connection with reality. Uh, you don't know what was written by a, a robot and what wasn't. In fact, I just saw that there had been one of the uh, AI detectors was pulled from the market because it, it just didn't work. They, they, they can no longer tell what the mm-hmm. AI is and what's the, the people. So that's a, a pretty scary thing. But yeah, this whole thing about what's reality is, oh, you know, one of these things I, I often call a meta, meta gray rhino is that it's a structural thing. It makes it so hard for you to fix the problems if people can't agree on what the problems are. They can't agree on the risks, you know? I love that you're tapping into that because it's hard to solve problems when we clearly identify the problem and, you know, finding solutions to certain problems sometimes is very difficult. But the problems that we are facing in society at large are complex. And if we can't even agree on what the problems are, how do you get started, right? And I think this is very related to coaching, which is, you know, how do we create alignment between people that have different views? And I think that's probably what a lot of people are trying to do in society at large today. So how do we leverage different points of views in a way that creates this unison of understanding versus just clashing with everyone that doesn't align with the way you look at things? Such a great question. And you know, here in Chicago and in Illinois, we, we have a huge, huge gap of, of, of worldviews. And even in an organization or for a CEO thinking about things, I think the first thing is to make sure that you've got diverse viewpoints and acknowledge the strength of diverse viewpoints. When it comes to risks, you're going to have different risk fingerprints, different risk pro- profiles. Make sure that those you know, that you recognize those as strengths so that people can offer different perspectives and, and don't take it personally when people offer competing perspectives. Think of it as a way to help potentially head off things that you couldn't even have, have seen coming. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's one part of it. Being aware sometimes of why somebody feels the way they do can help you to get past barriers. With risk as a particular example, uh, I often ask, and I get huge laughs about this, how much time do you leave to go to the airport? <laughs> Particularly in Chicago here where you know, the traffic can be unpredictable. If you're with a colleague and you both want to go to the airport and one of you likes to race to the gate at the last minute and the other one likes to get there ridiculously early, how do you fix that? But if you each know that it's not just that your colleague is annoying, it's that you know two weeks ago they missed a plane because they didn't get there soon enough. Or if you realize that the one who likes to race at the last minute, they're not less anxious about it. They're just controlling what they can, which isn't necessarily the most constructive response. But once you can see why somebody else has the position that they do, it can make it easier to get past whatever the obstacle is between you. And so having open conversations. Uh, another example, I've I've done a lot of uh, workshops with first responders, different parts of the world. And in one case, someone will say, oh yeah, terrorism's a threat. And someone else says terrorism's a threat. And they both 
looking at terrorism from completely different potential sources. And so that's where you need to have a common trust in some source of objective research that tells you what they are, and you need each person to really define the risk. Another example, I was doing a workshop where some guy, I asked everybody to identify their own gray rhinos, and then they broke into groups. So some guy said technology, and I thought he meant what people you know, usually are talking about, at least the ones I bump into, which is about technological change and digital disruption and how do you optimize your business. And he was just like, no, it's like, you know, the computers are getting old. You know, the, the computers are going to be going to be obsolete and we're not you know, upgrading our computers often enough, which is which is a fair point. But it, it wasn't at all what I was thinking about. So it's so important to get people to really talk about the problem, what the problem might be related to what's causing it, if you can solve this problem, and that might solve a whole bunch of other problems. I mean, you know, climate change is also going to solve some some health issues, some pollution issues, some energy cost issues. Uh, or if there's no way you solve this problem unless you can solve something else. In many, many companies, it's the, you know, fear of change, the fear of doing anything about problems. It's a cultural thing. It's a sort of a meta gray rhino. Climate change is a very interesting one because right now a lot of companies see climate change as, you know, a heavy tractor for profitability. But if we don't do anything about it in the decades to come, we'll actually be a huge hindrance to economic growth. So it's I think what we're getting at in our discussion today is that a lot of the problems that we're facing are complex systemic problems. It's like our age. It used to be that we were solving how do you have enough wheat to go through the winter? I mean, those are complicated problems, but the nature of complexity, just we just don't have that much experience as humans and human systems to deal with these very difficult nonlinear dynamics. So I, I talk to a lot of coaches and like it's interesting how coaches have had to continue to upskill their game because they're working with clients that, are experiencing these very different dynamics than we're all used to. And the world keeps seems to be speeding up and speeding up. And is how do you slow down and assess things properly? I mean, what you were just talking about are like with the computers are like different levels of analysis that are coming into one same conversation. So even it's just like a simple question is like someone maybe like, oh, computers. Oh, yes. Is AI going to take over? And he's like, no, these are like 1997 IBM computers that probably need to be replaced. You know, <laughs> So it's like very different lens that the same kind of conversation, the same conversation conversation. So it's interesting. So as we're closing out our conversation today, what are some of the recommendations or suggestions you have for coaches working, let's say, with clients in organizations that are facing all of these geopolitical systemic kind of components that used to not be as relevant to your day to day? And now working in large organizations, those have become more important. How can coaches be more prepared to work with those clients that work in complex environments? Well, even just mentioning complex environments is interesting. I found huge cultural differences between Asia, where the gray rhino is very, very big, and in the U.S., where I've gotten some more pushback. And it's that, you know, some cultures are much better at dealing with complex systems and some, you know. What's the pushback like? People are like, oh, well, oh, it's a black swan. You know, what do you mean it's obvious? If it's obvious, we're dealing with it. So, you know, what's the point of talking about needing to deal with obvious things because we're already dealing with it? The real defensiveness, you know, 
But it's interesting because the way people are defining black swans, they're, they're, a lot of these are not really black swans because if they were, we wouldn't be talking about them all the time because if they're, exactly. we're living in an age of black swans happening everywhere, I think your point is, well, if you actually look at the gray rhino, you would see the black swan coming. But the thing is, you think it's a black swan because you're not paying attention to all the indicators so they're not really truly black swans. They're just events that have a, I love these, like the high probability of low probability events. But it's <laughs> exactly. such a, you know, well, but maybe we're not talking about the same thing. Maybe what we call black swans are not black swans because of the high probability of a low probability event. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, if you're talking about something by definition, it's not a black swan. If something's possible, <laughs> it's right. not a black swan. And, you know, if you can see it in front of you, it's a gray rhino. And, I think complexity is important looking at how things come together. And in fact, it's been interesting the last couple of years, a lot of the, the annual risk trends lists do talk much more about systemic approaches. How could this problem interact with another one? So that's one thing. The second is uh, being conscious of cultural differences within your organization. Um, if you're an, a multinational, there's you know, huge, huge, huge cultural differences around risk perceptions uh, that you should be aware of. I think Asians tend to be much more perceptive and proactive than Westerners and particularly Americans. And I found that Europe tends to be in the middle somewhere. Self-awareness of what you are bringing to the risks that your organization faces. Your clients should have self-awareness of what they're bringing to that situation and how they can optimize processes, how they can make sure they've got the right team to complement their strengths and to offset their weaknesses when it comes to risk and decision making uh, you know the importance of a diversity of of risk perspectives and also that they are aligned with what you want your company to be whether you want it to be a stodgy legacy company that where the biggest risk is that it's be- going to become obsolete and you know, nobody does anything because that's how we have always done things or a startup where the biggest risk is that it doesn't grow up enough. That it, you know, often startups aren't as aware of certain risks as they could be, and they just kind of push forward and you know aren't as aware and need some more grown-ups in the room. So really having that a real diversity of risk fingerprints and profiles is very, very important. And to to appreciate those differences. And be self-aware and be aware of what each team member brings to the table. Love that, Michelle. So much to unpack with everything you said today, but we're really at the top of the hour here in this episode of Coaching Assume Drinking Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your very valuable insights. I think we're all going to be thinking about great rhinos for at least a couple of weeks. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. 